If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we've got an interview with the historian and broadcaster Dominic Sambrook. Dominic has spent much of his career chronicling the history of modern Britain, and his latest book, Who Dares Wins?, looks at one of the most colourful and controversial periods of our recent history, 1979 to 1982. Our digital editor, Emma Mason, headed to Dominic's home in Oxford to discuss why these three years were such a turning point. Maybe you could just start, Dominic, by telling us what inspired you to write the book. Well, this is the fifth book I've done um, on Britain since the 50s. Um, So Never Had It So Good, White Heat, State of Emergency and Seasons in the Sun are the book's predecessors and this is who dares wins it's about the early 1980s and it's the first time really that I've written about a period that I can remember probably remember I mean um and it was one that I was always really looking forward to when I started the project of writing about post-war Britain I always knew this would be really a defining moment for me and for the series because for a lot of people this is the moment when everything changed um and the advent of Margaret Thatcher, obviously so controversial and so divisive, I always knew I'd have to, you know, I'd have to sort of tread with care. I'd have to do it properly. I'd have to do it really well um, for people not to basically slag it off and to say it was partisan one way or the other. Um, But when I started doing it, which was in 2012, I was, you know, I knew that I... It wouldn't be autobiographical, but I knew that it would be fun to draw on my own memories. So I had a big list of topics. Um, Obviously, all the obvious political ones, the recession, the Falklands, unemployment, Thatcher, and so on. But, you know, in my sort of list, I had a lot of stuff that I remembered. So, for example, I talk in the book about how I remember going to McDonald's for a birthday party for the first time, Robert Greenwood's birthday party, when we were about seven. Um, and the enormous sort of excitement of Ronald McDonald being there and handing out the balloons, but also the fact, you know, I'd had burgers, but nothing like McDonald's burgers. 
And I thought, you know, it would be really fun to, you know, to have a look at. I don't think anyone's really written about this. And so I sort of went through, you know, the Mirror and the Express and the Guardian and the Times looking for mentions of McDonald's. From when, where, at what point did it become part of the conversation? And then I did that with other things as well. So, for instance, um, you know, home computers was a big thing for me as a child. I remember every, there was a point when nobody had them, and then suddenly there was a point when everyone had a Spectrum or a Commodore 64 or a BBC Micro, and our school had BBC Micro. And again, I thought, you know, this is something that maybe if I hadn't lived through it as a child, I wouldn't really be very conscious of or I'd take it for granted. But I'd really enjoy finding out about this. Um, so there was a sort of element of, you know, the, it felt more personal maybe than when I'd written about the 60s and the 70s. When I was very much an outsider writing about what seemed like an alien world, this felt like unearthing stuff that I had, you know, once known but long forgotten. Um, so it's that balance, I suppose, that I've tried to strike for the reader of telling, a, you know, a really arresting story about the advent of the first woman prime minister, the economic experiment that seems to go horribly wrong, and then the sort of resurrection in the Falklands War. But also there's always an element of um, nostalgia for, for readers. Um, you know, things they've... Limeswold Cheese, Duran Duran, Ian Botham, Snooker, that sort of stuff. And, and sort of combining the two and trying to tease out the historical meaning of some of these apparently trivial things. I think that's a lot of the pleasure for me to sort of knit them into a, I'm not sure knitting is the right metaphor, but um, to sort of weave them into this tapestry, into this pattern, I guess, um, and to show why all these things matter in their different ways and how they're affected, you know, not necessarily the great and the good, but completely ordinary people. And you say that in the book that the history of the early 80s is bitterly contested and there's no yeah. sort of consensus about what this period was and what it was about. What do you mean by that? Well, I think there were two periods in the last sort of 100 years that, of which that is true. One is the 1930s and one is the 1980s. So in both cases, they, they're times of economic downturn and of poverty and unemployment and all the rest of it. But there are also times when if you weren't in, when you, if you were in a job, life was it could be extremely good and a lot of people were making a lot of money. And for that reason, they feel different from the 50s and 60s, let's say, where the national experience was more uniformly positive, I suppose. So in the 1960s, everybody was better off. The economy was booming, wages were rising, living standards were going up year on year. So by and large, when people look back at the 1960s, they're remembering the same things. But in the 1980s, and particularly in the early 80s, um, if you're in Sunderland, your memory of the 80s is going to be very different from if you were living in Milton Keynes. Um, and for, for that reason, even at the time, the meaning of what was happening was very bitterly contested, uh, as you say. So, you know, you, you see that absolutely personified in the different reactions to Margaret Thatcher. Um, it's not just whether people like her as a person. It's, it's, it's about their own experience in the 80s. If their experience is one of unemployment and all the people around them they saw struggling or suffering, of course they're going to project that onto the woman at the top and hold her responsible. But if people, you know, if you, you in the 1980s founded your own business, made money, went on holidays, you know, bought two cars, all this kind of thing that a lot of people were doing, 
then again, you're going to associate the prime minister with kind of good times and, um, you know, she's the woman who saved Britain, all that kind of thing. And what I wanted to do with the, this book was to try to find a way to kind of, it's not quite steering between those two things, because I think if you steer between them, you end up saying nothing. Um, but it was a way of writing a story that treated them both with equal seriousness and equal weight. Um, but also to avoid that kind of thing that a lot of people do with the 80s. Um, you know, there were winners and losers, good, you know, the best of times, the worst of times, which I think is quite simplistic. You know, in, in a given place, there were always people who were, you know, in a given household, there might be people doing well and doing badly. I have a, a section in the book talking about places like Wigan and Port Talbot, where, you know, there might be one person, there might be one brother who's uh, going out on the right to work march and another who's filling in the forms for the right to buy. And the same people who are sort of lamenting the country's going to the dogs and it's all changed and all this sort of stuff might be themselves looking forward to going to the video shop to rent a film and looking at brochures for their new holiday in Yugoslavia or Tunisia or somewhere. So often, you know, it doesn't quite... People at the time didn't see themselves as foot soldiers in a civil war. I mean, some people did, but they're a tiny minority. Most people just getting on with their lives. And actually that was part of the, that's always been part of the objective of the whole series is to basically get at some of the experience of people who don't identify themselves as being particularly political. They don't even maybe read the political stories in the papers, but their lives are touched by the changes of the day. But to them, the things that matter are more everyday. And to get some of that kind of texture, um, that's what I sort of wanted to do with it and to get slightly get away, therefore, from seeing it purely in terms of the ideological conflict and of Thatcher and all that stuff. And you mentioned there lots of people were doing well, and that was one of the ironies, wasn't it? They'd, uh, the late 70s, they'd come out of what you describe as one of the gloomiest decades in modern British history, mm. but yet for a lot of people, life was more comfortable than ever. They had central heating, yeah. they had more... Things. Yes, absolutely. They had, I mean, that's the great paradox, isn't it? That, and you get that when you talk to people about the 70s and the 80s, that you can tell a story about it, which is all doom and gloom, uh, particularly the 70s, you know, strikes, having to get a humiliating bailout from the International Monetary Fund, uh, the Heath government broken by the miners, the Callaghan government broken by the unions in 1979, um, a sort of story of ungovernability and failure. And that's the story that a lot of British people told about their country. They would sort of say, yes, I'm personally better off than ever and I'm going on holiday and I've got my new telly and all the rest of it. However, the country as a kind of corporate entity is going to the dogs and that we are falling behind our competitors and we haven't got an empire anymore. And I think psychologically that had become quite embedded by the end of the 70s. And it's, it's not just among people who um, are kind of you know, civil servants and, and business leaders and so on. But actually, you see it so much in popular culture. I mean, the, the classic example that I give at the beginning of the book is Fawlty Towers. Um, the hotel is a sort of metaphor for Britain itself. You know, the famous episode when the American Waldorf salad, the American tourists arrive and nothing works. They can't get a hot meal. You know, Mr. Hamilton, the American um, guy who's pitched up, says, you know, this is the crummiest, shoddiest hotel in all of Western Europe. And he's not really just talking about Fawlty Towers, he's talking about Britain, he's talking about the United Kingdom. And I think that sense had become very ingrained. And yet, as you say, at the same time, 
the people who are saying that and are sort of opening their copies of the Daily Express and saying, oh, the unions have sold the country down the river, oh, bloody football hooligans, they themselves are surrounded by the fruits of affluence, by, the, as you say, the central heating and uh, the freezer and the microwave and all of those kinds of things. And actually, in some ways, that's Margaret Thatcher's genius as a politician, that she's able to tap both those things. So she appeals to people's anxieties about what's happening to their country and about national decline. But she's also able to tap their aspiration, the new kind of materialism, the consumerism. And there, I think it really helps that she's a woman because she says, oh, I understand about the family budget. I'm a housewife and mother just like you and all this kind of thing. And that appeal to domesticity is, I think, a really important part of her appeal. I can't think of any other politician in British history who's been so successful at both sort of playing the imperial warrior, but also playing the I'm an ordinary person like you who, you know, just wants to spend an evening cooking. Um, and, and she probably couldn't have done what well, she certainly couldn't have done it if she hadn't been a woman. That's absolutely fascinating. And, um, and of course, as you explore in the book, this, this was a period of, of empowerment for women. I always wanted to do something about um, the shock of the, a woman prime minister. And, uh, you know, until I really thought about it, it hadn't occurred to me, you know, it's not obvious what a woman prime minister would wear. And actually, that's true more generally. If you're a woman in um, a professional arena, First of all, there haven't been many people like you before. So you're a solicitor, you're a um, you're a doctor, you're a, uh, you're running a company. You know, you're Anita Roddick or something running the body shop. There aren't really many models. There aren't many obvious. You know, it's not like now where you can see what working women wear. You just couldn't. And actually, the papers were full of stuff about what should women wear, what would be appropriate, and. There's an interview that Margaret Thatcher gives with the News of the World in 1980 where they say, would, would you wear slacks? And she says, oh, maybe if I'm inspecting a submarine, which is a lie. She never wore them when inspecting a submarine. Um, and then she says, sort of mutters, oh, I don't think my cabinet colleagues would like it. And then the subject is dropped. And that made me think, well, what about women in trousers? And I um, did some digging on the subject of women, a slightly strange subject, admittedly, to, to, to dig into. And, you know, there were these extraordinary stories. There's a school um, in Reading called um, Maiden Early School in 1978 where the headmaster literally corralled the women teachers in a classroom because they turned up wearing trousers. You know, he thought it would alarm the pupils so much. And there was this huge battle. The local council got involved and the union got involved because the headmaster was adamant that women teachers shouldn't wear trousers. And there was a lot of resistance. In 1983, Golders Green Crematorium sacked a worker who had turned up in a trouser suit because she said, because the, the, the manager of the crematorium, a man obviously, said, um, you know, uh, people will find trousers on women as offensive as a T-shirt or a see-through blouse. And that she went to a tribunal and the tribunal agreed with him. So there's this sort of... I thought this was a nice way of getting into the fact that women are in a position where they can wear trousers at work, so that's obviously a bonus, but at the same time there are obstacles that there aren't for men. The Sun in 1979 had a comment about Margaret Thatcher's weight. It said, who would want a dowdy female fatty for prime minister? That was That's the quote. Well, the Sun had never said that of Ted Heath in the early 70s or Harold Wilson or Jim Callaghan. And the same, you know, Shirley Williams for the SDP, who was Mrs. Thatcher's only real rival as the sort of prominent female politician of the 80s. Shirley Williams, in every single profile, it mentioned that she was late and that she was scatty and that she was scruffy. 
and the scruffiness came up again and again. And it's not just sort of top down. I don't want to imply that it's top down because actually the newspapers often got letters from people who said, what a mess she is, often from women. What a mess. How can she run the country if she can't even comb her hair? You know, that kind of, the fact that women politicians had to put up with that, I think uh, at the time people took that for granted. And actually it's only now, I think, particularly with Margaret Thatcher, that people are starting to look at her and to think, well, actually, you know, there's an interesting dimension to this, which is, a working professional woman surrounded by men, how much does that explain, you know, the fact that she's strident and the fact that she doesn't want to give ground and the fact that she is, um, is so often described as bossy and hectoring and all those things, the fact that she's described as a witch or a bitch. Um, you can't but see all those things as kind of filtered through the, the, the shock for some people of her gender. And I think that's a really... Um, I found that a really enjoyable way of writing about her, actually, is the one woman surrounded by all these men who are judging her constantly, her hair, the makeup, the dress. Is she being annoying and a bossy schoolmarmish, you know, or is she being coquettish? And, you know, just the language they use is so revealing. And it was fascinating that um, throughout the book, it's peppered, it seems peppered with, the, with these amazing stories of her either being incredibly emotional or mm -hmm. um, parts of, say, the Falklands War, which we'll come to later, um, has sort of really affecting her deeply. Yes. Um, how, was she an iron lady? Um, well, no, not in the sense that, um, you know, nobody is entirely robotic. <laughs> Adrian Mole, in The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, Adrian Mole sends in a poem to the New Statesman that has the line, do you weep, Mrs. Thatcher, do you weep? Do you cry sometimes in your sleep? I think that's the, I think that's how it goes. And um, and the funny thing is she did, and she admitted it, but, but basically a lot of people just didn't want to hear it. Um, so she never really hid the fact that she was quite emotional. She, I've seen footage of her crying on camera, crying in interviews. Uh, for example, talking about her father. Um, but the image, you know, she obviously co collaborated with the making of the image of the Iron Lady. It was very important for her um, to seem unbending and to seem that she wouldn't be pushed around. I think, that, again, the fact that she's a woman surrounded by men explains a lot of that. Um, but actually, yes, the image of her as sort of callous and inhuman, I think misses the fact that actually she, she was a very emotional politician in the sense that, you know, if you if you think about, say, I don't know, David Cameron or somebody, uh, or, or James Callaghan to go back to the, the 70s, you know, life at Downing Street was actually pretty calm, measured. You know, everyone knew what they were doing. They didn't have huge shouting matches. Um there's a sort of, you know, we're all good chaps and we can get on with this um, sort of ethos. But with Mrs. Thatcher, life was incredibly histrionic. You know, if you disagreed with her, she took it very personally. She held grudges. Um, you know, there, there were endless kind of shouting matches, um, sort of, there's a sort of apocalyptic mood in the early 80s, everything's going wrong. And she's not the politician, you know, she's, it's not really in her makeup to come into the room and say, calm down, everyone, this will be fine. It's actually much more in her makeup to work herself onto this incredible lava and to get really overwrought about things um, in a way that was often hidden from the public. Because to the, when she put on, as it were, her public face, she was absolutely, you know, she really didn't want to, 
um, show any weakness, I suppose. But in private, yes, she's she's intensely patriotic, I think, in a way that often people at the time underrated. She has this romantic sense. I think this is one of the really unusual things about her in sort of post-war prime ministerial terms. She has this very romantic sense of Britain's unique history and exceptional destiny. So she says stuff that you can't imagine Harold Wilson or Edward Heath or you know John Major saying, you know, we we are not just any other country. We're not another European country. That's why we built such a great empire. It's why we stood when everyone else surrendered. You know, she says that kind of thing quite often. And her cabinet ministers, when they hear this, are often, you know, they've got their head in their hands kind of thing. They're, they're embarrassed by it. And they just think, oh, God, this is so ghastly. This vulgar little woman with her sort of schoolgirlish ideas about British history. But obviously, this is what a lot of the public were very keen to hear. You know, playing that patriotic card, um, was very successful. And I think, um, you know, it's the interesting thing with Margaret Thatcher is striking that sort of balance between that emotional, romantic, ultra-patriotic side of her, but also the image of unbending rigour that she presented at party conferences and all that kind of thing. You know, she's somebody whose politicians always have to play a part. And she's somebody who's actually very good at playing. She's a good actress. She's good at playing the different roles. Um, I, you know, after writing this book, I really, I thought to myself, I remember saying to somebody, you know, if politicians were top Trump's cards, she'd be a good card. She'd be, she has got a lot of the, you know, she's got a lot of the skills. Um, she's a better card than her rivals, actually. She just is better at playing the different parts. She's a good opportunist. She's good at telling people her, or she's good at identifying her audience and telling them what they want to hear. Um, and so the way that she sometimes slips into that emotional persona and then she slips out of it again is, that, is a great political skill. You say in the book that the early 80s, this period, was the rebirth of patriotic populism, so the British are back and yes. all this optimism. Yeah. She touched something there, didn't she? She did, absolutely. I think um, since the 1950s, the, the prevailing narrative that people told about themselves and their country was one of decline. So we'd won the war, but then we'd lost the empire. And even though people were better off, they felt that Britain itself as a kind of brand was diminished. Um, they'd seen the flag going down in colony after colony. They'd seen British troops embroiled in this horrible, dirty kind of civil war in Northern Ireland. They'd seen the newspapers run league tables day after day showing Britain were performing worst in Europe for inflation or for strikes or, or productivity and all these kinds of things. They'd seen the sort of indignity of getting the bailout from the International Monetary Fund, then the record, the biggest bailout in history. So I think, you know, at the end of the 70s, people had this, they were sick of feeling bad about their country. They wanted good news, and it's really striking when you look back. For sort of, you know, for, for 13 years or so, it's basically, you know, a teenager's lifetime, the news had been generally very bad. And what Margaret Thatcher offered, you know, she unrepentantly said, we are a great country, but we're in terminal decline, and I will reverse it. And, of course, the interesting thing is that for the first two or three years, she doesn't reverse it, she seems to intensify it. So things get worse and worse economically, nightmarishly worse. 
with unemployment shooting up above 3 million and the Britain going into the biggest, the worst recession in the Western world since the Second World War. And with the riots of 1981 that tear the inner cities apart, it just feels like Britain is falling apart and everything is going wrong. And then, of course, the Falklands happens and suddenly the flag is flying again and all is right with the world and we're top nation, hurrah, hurrah. And it's as though her patriotic promises have been vindicated. And what I think the, the, the British people, or certainly a large proportion of the British people got a taste for was exactly what you said, this patriotic populism, this sort of, you know, the elites don't like it, um, the establishment don't really like it, but we don't care. There's the sun, basically, the kind of gotcha, um, stick it up your hunter, sort of, you know, that kind of defiant stuff, which actually in a broader historical context, you know, it makes complete sense. To me, it feels so 18th century. The kind of the roast beef of old England, you know, the, the scurvy foreigners will never be worth as much as an Englishman, all that kind of thing. You know, if you were a member of the mob in 1780 or something, you would recognise this on the front page of The Sun in 1982, absolutely. And I think Mrs Thatcher, you know, she consciously plays the part of Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria or kind of Bodicea. You know, that's how people draw her in cartoons. It's how people describe her. And it's, she glories in that role. And it's what a lot of people wanted to see. And, you know, I've seen so many interviews with or sort of quotations from or diary entries from people who will say, oh, I never voted Tory before. You know, I don't like her for this, but she's strong and she, you know, she stood up to the arges, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think people were aching to hear that, actually. I think um, it's a side of Britain that, the sort of more more herbivorous kind of bien pensant people were horrified to see. There's a book I um, talk a little bit about called Authors Take Sides on the Falklands. And it was modelled on a book from the 1930s called Authors Take Sides on the Spanish Civil War. And basically the organisers got all these intellectuals and writers and stuff and said, what do you make of the Falklands? And most of them thought it was absolutely awful. And what they objected to, you, you know, you... You don't even need to read between the lines. They say it quite bluntly. What they hate about it is that it has reawakened this patriotism in the British people that they think thought was dead since the 1960s. You know, Salman Rushdie says at one point, he doesn't even want to talk about it. It just makes him feel so ashamed. And, um, you know, that's the interesting thing, that this, that I think is what distinguishes her from other prime ministers and actually what distinguishes this period really from the 70s or the 60s is the revival of this populism and this populism taking center stage you know the patriotism of the common man and woman um that the elites have supposedly sneered at for the last 20 years or so and it was you know i'm sure one reason why this theme struck me so strongly is obviously because i was writing the book just before during and after the 2016 referendum and the more I sort of thought about it, the more I thought, you know, if this period had not worked out as it had, if things had been different, if this force hadn't made itself felt, would Britain have seen itself as exceptional? Would Britain have voted to leave the EU? Um, so that's why I have the line in the, in the introduction about the road to Brexit, sort of beginning in 1982. I think if Britain had not... Britain, if people had still seen themselves, if people had still said the empire's gone, we, we are just another country, actually, then I think the course of the next 20 or 30 years might have been very different. But as it was, they got the 
they rediscovered the taste for kind of waving the flag and the British bulldog and all the rest of it. And obviously a lot of people have never lost it. Had we not fought in the Falklands or had we lost, I think the narrative would have been very different. There's a moment a couple of days before the Argentine fleet actually hits the Falkland Islands. So they're on their way. The intelligence has reached London, but it's so far away we can't do anything about it. There's just this ghastly kind of inevitability. And it's the Wednesday night before the invasion, and Mrs Thatcher is closeted with all her advisors and officials. And um, they say to her, we can't do it. We can't retake the, the islands. And then in walks this famous sort of melodramatic scene, in walks the first sea lord, Sir Henry Leach, in his admiral's rig, and he says to her, we have to do it. We have to retake them. And he says, if we don't, we shall find ourselves living in a very different country whose word will count for little. And, of course, that's precisely calibrated to kind of stir Mrs Thatcher's patriotic feelings. But he was right. I think Britain... A Britain that's lost the Falklands or had not fought, had just basically said, fine, have them, would have been a different country. I think it would have confirmed the impression of post-imperial decline. It would have... You wouldn't have had the revival of interest in the military and the revival of this kind of populist patriotism. And I think as a result, um, you wouldn't have had this, the, the, the rebirth the, the, or the, of, of sort of Tory Euroscepticism later in the 80s. Um, the, you know, the Labour Party would have, accommodated it, would have accommodated itself to Europe as it did. But maybe there wouldn't have been the sort of flag-waving, up yours, Delors kind of... Um, a sentiment that you had at the end of the 80s. Maybe Britain, more people would have said, yeah, of course, we're, we're, we're a dead duck. So we really are, you know, a big Belgium and we should embrace it. And I think it's, you know, psychologically, I think the Falklands, because it revived those memories of the Second World War, Britain standing alone, we can do it. It's just merely a question of will, you know, all the stuff that you hear now. Um, yeah, I think it obviously counterfactual history is very dicey, but I think it's hard to imagine there being the same kind of of populism and the same kind of patriotic story had it not been for the Falklands. And you mentioned there, I know in the book you say this is a book about the past, not the present. <clears throat> uh, but as you as you've touched on already, you yeah. can't help but draw parallels to the um the rhetoric that was being spouted yeah. uh, in the in the run up to the referendum and of course even parallels perhaps with Trump's make America great again, that kind of... Yes. Um, that attitude. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm definitely not going to defend Trump at all. But what I will say is make America or Britain or wherever great again is a standard political device. Um, so Trump's not the first president to use that phrase. Bill Clinton used that phrase. Ronald Reagan used that phrase. And making Britain great again is what all opposition leaders pretty much say. The country was great in this golden age before the current government took over. We will recapture that lost greatness. I mean, that's like a sta pretty standard political device. But you're right that there's a um, there's a there's a strain of sort of conservative patriotism that Mrs. Thatcher incarnates that has become very strong in the last twenty years, let's say, and. Um, at one point, I talk in the book about how about her use of the phrase "ordinary people." So she uses it something like two hundred and fifty times during um, her time in office. 
she doesn't talk about, you know, I'm, I'm for the middle classes or I'm for that. She says, I'm for ordinary people. And the implication is that people who oppose her are not ordinary. They are, of course, in the sort of Tory demonology, they are trade union barons, renter mob, student protesters, strikers, stuck up sneering snobs, you know, all that sort of stuff. Ted Heath hadn't really talked about that sort of stuff, nor had Harold Macmillan. So the pre uh, Tory predecessors hadn't really indulged in that kind of rhetoric. But she does it, and she does it very successfully, and it obviously allows her to reach people that they had never reached, which is kind of lower middle class, ambitious, skilled working class voters, some of whom are voting Tory for the first time in their lives. Um, the kind of people who are buying their own council houses, who, who do chafe at being, as they see it, bossed around by kind of, um, you know, in their minds, they're being bossed around by teachers and social workers and trade unionists and all these sort of monstrous figures of the Tory imagination. And I think, um, yeah, you can, there's a strain of politics there that actually she pioneers, I suppose, in Britain that Richard Nixon had pioneered in America 10 years earlier, that Reagan obviously did, that, that Donald Trump has picked up, that is very effective, actually, at reaching across the old class lines and picking up voters who and giving them a, a focus for their resentment, but also almost giving them license to feel that they can be, you know, um, they can wave the flag and say how great Britain is and all, and all the rest of it. And um, you mentioned there um, the right to buy and something I wanted to pick up mm. on um, because clearly, as you say in the book, it's associated in the public imagination with um, a new freedom and independence, um, self-improvement. Yes. But obviously there were lots of downsides. Yeah. So, well, the obvious downside, I mean, this is a very good example of a, um, a Thatcher-era policy that you can sort of look at and clearly say, well, that didn't work, was that... I don't think it's so much the problem with the right to buy, but it's the associated refusal to let councils build new houses. So basically, partly because they thought the private sector would fill the gap, but also basically because the Treasury, as the Treasury always is, is very jealous for money, jealous to sort of guard its proceeds. They sold off all these council houses, but they basically wouldn't let the councils use the money to build new ones, which has contributed both to the shooting up of house prices since the 80s, but also the housing shortage lower down for people who want to get onto the housing ladder. Um, but obviously the, the single big fact about the, the right to buy is that it was colossally popular. And some historians, particularly people who basically, you know, they have their Margaret Thatcher pinned permanent to their dartboard, um, believe that she forced people against their will to um, buy their council houses or that she brainwashed people into wanting a home of their own. But that's very clearly not true because you can see from surveys that in the 70s, people had said they really wanted a home of their own. In fact, Labour Party officials reported that on the doorstep, it would come up again and again that people would say, when can we buy our council house? Why won't you let, let us? And actually the Labour Party had discussed, you know, that um, James Callaghan's policy chief and Harold Wilson's policy chief, Bernard Donoghue, had discussed um, a plan to let council tenants buy their own houses, but it was blocked by the Labour left. So basically it fell into Mrs Thatcher's lap and she said, oh, we're giving you independence, we're giving back power to the people. And it was immensely popular, far more popular than a lot of people had, had predicted. Um, you know, colossal take-up. Labour, 
Labour councils often try to block it. There are all these stories about in Sheffield, for example, they said, you know, we're obliged to print the forms, but we're not obliged to tell people where they are. Um, so they've kind of got them hidden away somewhere. Um, and in fact, Sheffield Council, which was then run by David Blunkett, employed somebody specifically to tell people of the disadvantages of buying a council house. They couldn't stop them doing it, but they tried to persuade them out of it. By contrast, some Tory councillors in the south of England, you know, couldn't sell them fast enough. I mean, there's one council, I think Rochester, actually had a competition. And the prize was a council house in order to publicise... Um, uh, in order to publicise, you know, the, the policy. One of the obvious effects is that it changes the image of council housing forever. So previously, you know, you could be perfectly kind of self-reliant, affluent, respectable and all the rest of it and live in a rented council house. Paul McCartney's father, for example, you know, lived in a council house. They grew up, there was nothing wrong with it. There was no stigma, you know, absolutely um, respectable. But by the mid-80s, that has clearly changed. Council housing is starting to be seen as unrespectable. And it basically, council estates end up being seen as ghettos for the poor, for people who've fallen through the cracks, for immigrants and so on. And that's never changed. Um, and now I, I wonder how you would change it, because the idea of home ownership has become so ingrained in the national psyche. And that, I suppose, is a victory for, the conserv for, 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 for Thatcherism. Um, the Tories had always believed that they would win if it, Britain was, as they called it, a property-owning democracy. And that, of course, is what Britain is, with the caveat that because they didn't build enough houses, there's people who have been shut out of that revolution, as it were. And that is still something, you know, still a pretty glaring policy error to this day. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The record has been changed and it gives people a taste for things that, that had been lost. I mean, it's extraordinary that so many of the newspapers and the sort of diarists and whatnot at the time say, this was a Britain that we thought was gone. We thought people had forgotten this. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment. 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And how many other effects can we see today? In this, I'm thinking in the sense of um, it changed people's mentality about they, they ended up taking on debt that they would never have considered a generation earlier. Yes. Of the obvious example being a mortgage. Yeah. Well, um, obviously Mrs. Thatcher did encourage people to get out mortgages to buy their council houses. But the one thing I'd say about that is that people, the mortgages were so heavily discounted um, with the council houses, that I'm not convinced that 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 I mean that that obviously plays a part in the kind of culture of debt, but I don't think it's the whole explanation. The truth of the matter, actually, I think, is that with this, as with within quite a lot of with quite a lot of things, she has become a very convenient scapegoat for something for which, in effect, we're all to blame. So people had debt, personal debt has started been rising for decades, and. It is certainly true that the Tory government of the 80s relaxed the restrictions on things like higher purchase, credit, and so on. They allowed um, the banks to compete with the building societies to lend people money. Um, They made it cheaper, easier. They particularly allowed women to borrow um, in ways they hadn't been able to borrow before. But they didn't force people to borrow. Um, And it's interesting when you read ordinary people's sort of... They, they often feel quite conflicted about it. They will say, oh, my parents brought me up not to buy on the never-never. You know, if you, my dad used to say to me, if you have to buy it on the never-never, it shows you can't afford it, that kind of thing, says a woman who has 27 credit cards. You know, that sort of, uh, that people felt ambiguous about it, but they still wanted the stuff. They'd grown up in a consumer society where they're surrounded by advertising and where they've been sold this, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, um, lifestyle, you know, that's nothing to do with Margaret Thatcher. I mean, Margaret Thatcher doesn't have a credit card herself. She, whenever she's asked about it, she's very wary of credit cards. And she sort of says, oh, I, you know, you know, she preaches the values of thrift and saving and all the rest of it. But the truth is that this is a, the, the, the debt culture is, I think, driven as much from the ground up as anything. And the word that really sort of stuck in my mind when I read people's accounts of this was entitled. So people would say, I, you know, I know I've got a lot of credit cards. I know I've got like a store charge cards and stuff, but I just really feel that, you know, I'm 40 now. I've got a good job. I'm entitled to it. And that language of entitlement actually, I think, comes from the 1960s. It's part of this sort of, I've got a right to this stuff. You know, I, for people who've grown up in an age of affluence and they feel that they, they, they should have it. I mean, that's something that we can all recognize, isn't it? Uh, in you know here in 2019 how many of us think well i can't quite afford this but so-and-so's got it and i i should be a person who has this thing i'll get it I'll, you know and i'll pay it off later i mean i don't think margaret thatcher's responsible for that quite the reverse in some ways she's quite 
you know, she's one of the last kind of re relics of Victorian Methodists, you know, saving and thrift and paying your way. And in that sense, she's out of kilter with the values of society. But I think she thought it was government's, it wasn't government's role to, to hold people back. I think partly she's quite, I mean, a lot of people who despise her would obviously be horrified to hear me say this, but I think one of the funny things about her is that she's quite idealistic. So she believes, and you see it time and again, she will say, oh, the British people, they're, you know, they're, they're so virtuous and all this sort of stuff. And she thought if you remove the, the barriers, people will behave very well. They'll be very kind and they'll give to charity and they'll save their money and all the rest of it. Of course, what they really do is they rush out and buy, you know, video nasties on their credit cards. Um, so she has a very unjaundiced view of human nature, which explains, I think, some of, the, you know, the that why the consequences of her decisions turn out to be completely opposite of what she expected they'd be. And staying with the topic of money, obviously, it would be remiss not to discuss the recession. Mm -hmm. um, talk us through what was happening. I mean, the numbers are astounding. Yeah. I mean, there was always going to be a recession in Britain in the early 80s uh, because there's a world recession and because with the revolution in Iran, oil prices shot up and the world economy suffered a second oil shock um, in six years. But the recession in Britain was much worse than anywhere else. By some estimates, um, British manufacturing lost a quarter of its capacity. So you basically, to put that in layman's terms, you walk down the street and there's eight factories, two of them have gone by 1982. Um, the numbers that are unemployed just go absolutely through the roof. So when Mrs Thatcher took over, um, unemployment was round about a million or so. And by 1982-83, it's gone up to pretty much 4 million, though the government massages the figures to, to make it look better. The big debate is how much she's personally responsible, how much the government um, caused this. And I think there's no doubt they did make things a lot worse. Uh, the big driver of it was the pound was too high, because of largely because of North Sea oil, but also because of interest rates being so high to squeeze inflation out of the system. That made it virtually impossible for people to sell their products abroad, because They've gone up by so much in price. Um, and you see all this huge sort of holocaust, I mean, is the word people use at the time, industrial holocaust in places like the Black Country and in the Lancashire Mill Towns and in the northeast of England, in South Wales, in Clydeside in Scotland. There's business after business shuts its doors. And the social and kind of cultural impact was absolutely vast. I mean, it happens at a time when working-class industrial Britain is in decline anyway. Um, so, you know, that world of the sort of terraced houses and the men in the flat caps and the pub and the football club and, you know, everybody, the kids all going to the factory or down the mine or whatever, that world is breaking up anyway. But the recession just accelerated it out of all proportion to what was happening in other European countries. Now, you can look back now and you can say, well, this is obviously a colossal cultural and social change, but not one limited to Britain. I mean, it's happened everywhere. You know, go to Detroit or something, and you see what's happened to the, these car-making communities in America. But because it happened earlier in Britain than anywhere else, the recession was seen as part of this bigger story of national failure. 
And it was seen as uniquely Thatcherite as well. So it's basically, I mean, the way people described it in 1981 was they said, you know, Britain has been going downhill for 30 years. Things have been getting worse and worse. And this woman has pitched up with this plan that she says will make it all better. And it's actually made things incalculably worse. So she's compounded our specifically British problems with her own kind of lunacy. And now we're plunging into this utter nightmare from which we all never... Um, we will never be able to extract ourselves. Um, and certainly, you know, I think if you were a you know, middle-aged or elderly man particularly, and you're in Blackburn, Glasgow, Wolverhampton in 1981 or 1982, and you're looking around, you know, the, people often feel this crushing sense of loss because the world they grew up with has disappeared. The factories have gone, the workshops have gone, Shops are shutting down, people have moved out. You know, the neighbourhood has kind of gone downhill. The working men's club has closed or is admitting women. Shock horror. Um, you know, there's this sort of sense of um, the recession has really just set off a bomb underneath your world. And, of course, people look for somebody to blame. And it really matters that the person who's presiding over all this is a Tory woman. And that, I think, explains a lot of the, the personal bitterness towards Margaret Thatcher. I mean, there's no doubt that her policies made things worse. But the one thing that always struck me is, you know, France, since the, 19, well, since the 1990s, has had this cripplingly high youth unemployment rate, which we don't have. So one in four French kids is basically out of work. But no French person ever says, Jacques Chirac, what an evil man, François Hollande cackles while young people are thrown on the scrap heap. Nobody says that kind of stuff, but people still say it about Margaret Thatcher. They still say, ah, oh, she's, you know, she's that woman, blah, 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 blah. And I, again, I think the fact that she's a woman matters enormously. Of course, she invited some of this because she's so strident and confrontational. And because she described the recession at the time, you know, she sold herself as a doctor and this is the kind of shock therapy. But... The fact that she's a woman, I think, makes it very easy for people to personalise it and to blame what is the result often of huge kind of global economic forces on one person. And, you know, if she hadn't, if she'd fallen under a bus in 1978, if Michael Foote had been Prime Minister, would there, would there have been a recession in the early 80s? Yes. Probably not as bad, but yes. And would Britain be full of, you know, gigantic car factories and coal mines full of people and all that kind of thing today? Obviously not. So it's easy to sort of get sucked into telling that story as though it's the kind of be-all and end-all, but actually it's a symptom of a much bigger kind of global trend. We then have the Falklands War. Yes. Which changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it changes the... Well... The narrative. It doesn't, it doesn't. It changes the narrative. Here's the thing. People will so often say the Falklands War saved Thatcher and changed the whole story. Now, I, it, maybe it changed the whole story, but did it save her? No. She was always going to win that next election. So she's already recovering in the polls before the Falklands War happens. What At the end of 1981, I mean, it's extraordinary to think of now, the new SDP Liberal Alliance was on more than 50% in the opinion polls. Labour was kind of becalmed in the mid-20s and spending its time um, tearing itself apart and you know, people slanging each other off, which would obviously never happen now. And the Tories are on about, you know, 22, 23%. So 
it looks impossible for the Tories to come back. But then from January 1982 onwards, the SDP just, it's like their, their, their bubble, the air just, just goes out of it, basically. And the Tories start to make their comeback. Why? Because Britain is out of recession. Because people are spending more money. Um, because house prices are going up interest rates are coming down. There's all these little bits of kind of, I hesitate to say good news because it's still a kind of very battered, bruised country, but it, it's, it's at least it's not terrible news. And people just start reverting. It's slow and it's small, but you can see the trend. Then the Falklands War happens and um, this sort of trickle becomes a flood. Now, political scientists and kind of polling experts have shown, I think, that that would have happened more gradually anyway, in, in time for the 1983 election, when Mrs Thatcher would have been facing this sort of flaky SDP, very badly divided Labour Party, and would almost certainly have won anyway. But you're right, the Falklands War, what it does is it changes the general story, and it changes her image. Or rather, it turned, it doesn't change, I mean, it's not like people thought differently of Mrs Thatcher, or that, it's not that they associated her with different characteristics, after the Falklands War, but they think better of those characteristics. So people had always thought she's very strong, she's very strident, she's very aggressive. But whereas in sort of February 1982, people had thought about those things in terms of about unemployment and the economy, and they thought those things were negatives. In um, June 1982, when we've won the Falklands War, people think of those things as positives. As somebody wrote at the time, you know, people have got used to her. They can now see the point of her. It's like having a gadget that you don't know what it does and it's just very annoying. And then suddenly you find this use for it. You're like, oh, it's brilliant. Um, and I think, um, you know, you can see the public opinion change so quickly. People, the Falklands, nobody knew where they were. Most people never heard of them. They thought they were in Scotland. But as soon as the invasion happens, you know, some of her... People sometimes describe it as a Thatcherite war, but that's not right. Some of the biggest Thatcherites were dead against it. Her policy chief, her chancellor, Geoffrey Howe, her chief economic advisor, um, Professor Alan Walters, they kind of said, why would you do this? You know, spend so much money retaking in islands with 1,800 people. It doesn't make any strategic sense. Um, it's so risky. It could ruin everything we've worked for. It's just mad. That's their take on it. Alan Walters used to send around these papers saying it might be much cheaper to bribe the Falkland Islanders to come and live in Devon or something or send them to New Zealand where they can sort of talk to sheep to their heart's content. But Mrs Thatcher's immediate instinct was we've got to get them back. The public will want us to get them back. And she was right. The pub, that's exactly what the public wanted. The Falklands War was exceedingly popular. So about 80% of the public in opinion polls right from the start said, you know, you've got to send the task force. You've got to get them back. Two out of ten people wanted to attack Argentina itself, basically to invade Argentina. Um, the public were very bellicose. That's what horrified kind of intellectuals and kind of, you know, academic-y kind of people who were just sort of, where have all these people come from? It's like they climbed out of their rocks, all these patriots. Um, and suddenly, you know, for the first time really, probably the only time in her entire premiership, Mrs Thatcher's rhetoric and her persona are what the great, vast, overwhelming majority want. They want somebody who will say, we will fight and we will get them back. 
And you know, everything about the war is perfectly, you know, no scriptwriter could have invented a better scenario. The Falkland Islanders are these kind of harmless, old fashioned sheep farmers. They look like people from the 1950s. Um, they've never hurt anybody. They were just, you know, prodding along, having their sheepdog trials and stuff when the Argies pitched up. The Argentines are a fascist dictatorship um, with a track record of kind of attaching electrodes to their poets and throwing them out of aeroplanes over the Atlantic. You know, they're baddies, basically. They're unmit, you know, they're, they're, there's no way of sort of selling this in another way. Uh, the UN backs Britain. Uh, the United States eventually backs Britain. France backs Britain. Even Argentina's neighbor, Chile, they hate Argentina. They help Britain. So Britain's got a lot of advantages, but it's still quite dicey because the operation is, is difficult. It's a long way away. Landing in such conditions is really tricky. And then there's the spectacle of the task force leaving, the, 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 the ships plowing across the ocean, um, the landings under enemy fire, the, the little figures, little green figures with their big packs kind of trudging across the landscape through the rain. It all feels like a little rerun of the Second World War, basically. And it's, it's, it's perfectly calculated to stir the hearts of people who've grown up watching the Dambusters and Dad's Army. And, um, you know, you look at the press reaction, the sort of almost hysterical outpourings of excitement and then of enthusiasm when victory is won. And I do, I do think it changes the story. It drives unemployment off the front pages. It banishes the idea of Britain being ungovernable. It, for the first time in Mrs. Thatcher's premiership, it, it, it shows people actually she is capable of doing what she says. You know, it's not all going to kind of fall apart um, as soon as she t as soon as she touches it, and um, and yeah, I think it's. I mean, I always think the image that sums it up is the image, the very famous, of the 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 troops marching across the moorlands, and there's one of them with the Union Jack sticking out of his backpack. It's the photo that's always used for the Falklands War, and it's the flag that makes it because when people, I mean, people had not associated the flag with success for 30 years, you know, 40 years. When people had seen the flag on the news, it had been the context of it coming down. You know, Prince Philip is in the Gold Coast for their independence kind of thing. The flag comes down, the new flag comes up. It's the kind of the falling flag, basically. And when people had seen the British Army on the news, it had been the context of Northern Ireland. They've just killed somebody. Um, or they've been blown up in a horrific kind of roadside bomb. Um, so it, it's like that, yeah, it's, it's, the record has been changed. Um, and it gives people a taste for things that, you know, that had been lost. I mean, it's extraordinary that so many of the newspapers and the sort of diarists and whatnot at the time say, this was a Britain that we thought was gone. We thought people had forgotten this. Enoch Powell, who... Uh, obviously not everybody's cup of tea, um, wrote in the Sunday Express, he said, a change has come about in Britain. We are ourselves again. You know, we haven't been ourselves for the last 30 or 40 years, but now we're ourselves again. And of course, you know, we're talking of the sort of road to Brexit and all that kind of thing. I mean, you can absolutely see where that leads. You know, Powell's the great in, sort of political godfather of Brexit. And there were a lot of people who would have bought into that, that we haven't been ourselves for a long time. But through battle, we have rediscovered our essential spirit.
So how, how did um, that messaging get across? Because I note in the book that you said it was the worst reported war since Crimea. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, the Ministry of Defence didn't really want to take any war correspondence at all. They learned the lessons from the Americans in Vietnam. Um, so the news comes very slowly and it's and it's sort of mediated through the MOD. Um, and... You know, they don't release the names of the ships that have been sunk early, uh, straight away. And they're very, and, and footage of um, people dying or people wounded or sinking ships doesn't get back to Britain for months after the war. So, for that reason, you know, it's not surprising that it was so popular because, in contrast with Vietnam, um, people are not being bombarded with images of the downside of war. Um, they don't get to see them. And the government, you know, exercise very tight control. But in a way, did they need to? Because from the very beginning, you know, the newspapers were pretty, with the exception of The Guardian and The Mirror, the newspapers were pretty gung-ho. So the newspapers were always going to take that line. There was a huge furore about the BBC. Um, the BBC didn't want to call the British forces our forces, which a lot of Tory MPs thought was basically tantamount to treason. <laughs> And um, the, Brit the BBC also saw its role as to basically report the news objectively sort of arbitrating between the Argentine and British versions. Um, again, a lot of people complained at that. They said that British Broadcasting Corporation should be on Britain's side, you know, as you were in the Second World War. Um, but I think by and large, the BBC actually reported it pretty well. And I think, you know, I don't believe that the Falklands War is an example of kind of government management of the media persuading something, persuading people of something they wouldn't otherwise have believed. I think enthusiasm for the Falklands was spontaneous and very much bottom up. And um, in some ways, actually, the story of the Falklands War is one of the kind of cultural gatekeepers being taken aback by the extent of the kind of popular enthusiasm for it. And you said in the book that there was um, a sort of class dimension. So maybe you could take us through what were the sort of public views? I appreciate they weren't yeah. straightforward. No, they're never entirely straightforward. But insofar as you can generalise, you know, columnists and um, writers at the time often said, you know, basically you, you, you go to a council estate, you go to um, a sort of industrial town, and when, you know, labour people go canvassing, they report that on the doorstep, time and again, people will say, oh, I really admire Maggie for the Falklands. Of course we should be fighting them, of course, all this kind of thing. And yet they would say to themselves, you know, Guardian writers like Peter Jenkins, the Guardian's kind of star political writer of the day, would sort of say, I don't know anybody who supports the war. You know, it's a little bit, um, I don't know anybody who voted leave kind of uh, stuff. And I think actually, you know, you know, I don't really, because I don't want to, to be a book about the present, it's a book about the past. But actually, when I was doing this stuff, I did think to myself how accurately some of this prefigures the debates we have right now. Um, that there is a kind of, even in the 80s, there is a sort of real sense of a gulf between the kind of people who kind of write and read literary novels, shall we say, who are just appalled by the whole enterprise and embarrassed by what they see as the jingoism and the glorying in slaughter and so on. And then you know, the sort of um, the, the voices of the football crowds 
who just cannot see why there's anything wrong with why you wouldn't fight to recapture your territory when it's been invaded. And um, yeah, there is a class dimension there, I think. I think there's a sort of, you know, there's a working class patriotism that the Falklands specifically stirs, and that's why the Sun is so important. You know, the Sun is a relatively new paper in 1982. Um, it's been losing ground a little bit, so the new Daily Star in the last couple of years is started doing bingo in an attempt to bring back readers so it's under pressure and it really goes for it in the Falklands you know it attacks critics of the war as traitors it um it you know the gotcha headline about the sinking of the Belgrano and so on um it does all these silly things like people get a reward if they send in a kind of argy-bargy joke and it they get a they get they get a tin of corned beef non-Argentine corned beef um, it does things like it flies giant, sort of colossal page three pinups and drops them, you know, to Ascension Island so the troops can have them, and all this kind of stuff. Now this doesn't add hugely to the sun south, but it doesn't diminish them either. You know, so there's clearly lots of people who find this stuff great and really enjoy it. Um, and I think there is a definitely um, a class element to all this. And there's a sort of, you know, there's a the, the, the tw for a lot of the twenty percent who don't support the war. Um, there's a sense of, just a sense of shock, I think, that what they see is their country has been taken away from them. And that is a very kind of Remainy um, sentiment. I can remember reading after the Brexit referendum, Paddy Ashdown says that he said to his wife, I don't recognise this country anymore. You know, what's happened to this country? You hear people say that all the time, what's happened to this country? Well, people were saying that in 1982. Alan Bennett, the playwright, wrote in his diary after the, after victory in the Falklands, he wrote, you know, I don't feel English now. They're singing Rule Britannia in Downing Street. How can this be happening? You know, I think there's a whole generation who had um, come of age in the 1960s and they'd gone through the 70s, feminism, gay rights, Labour Party moving to the left, um, and they'd sort of felt that history was on their side. They were young, you know, you do feel that when you're young. And you've, you're at university, you're the kind of master of your own little universe, and you sort of think, you know, those fuddy-duddies, those tweedy Tory reactionaries of the 50s have been kicked into the dustbin, and we will remake society, and we will, we will bring in a, a kinder, gentler, more equal Britain. And then this ghastly woman becomes prime minister in 1979 and goes around telling people that it's, you know, it's good to be ambitious and to make money and, you know, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. And then, you know, she clearly loves the Falklands War and says how thrilling, that's her word, thrilling it is to be fighting for freedom um, instead of arguing about kind of welfare policies or whatever. And all these people respond to this and think this is great. And you, the sort of 60s product, you know, with your cherished um, copy of E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class and your, you know, John Lennon's Imagine and stuff, you think, Christ, what's happened? Uh, this isn't the country I thought I was in. We were in control of the future, and now the future's been taken away from us by these vulgar, Tory, materialistic jingoists. And there is a class dimension to that, I think. Um, and I think that, that that actually runs right through modern politics to this day. It's obviously huge now, that kind of, that sort of, it, it's, a, it's class as culture 
rather than just as economics. Um, and I think, you know, what doing this story made me understand better where we are now, actually, um, and understand the kind of rifts that you see in society now, because you can see where they came from. So what would you say is the legacy of this period for us today? Well, I mean, the legacy is is sort of has loads of elements. I mean, we haven't really talked about computers, obviously, but computers, when all this is forgotten, by the way, computers will be the one thing that's remembered. So basically, there's, I don't know how many chapters there are in the book, 32 or something. There's one <laughs> that, will, that's, that will really matter in the long run because computers are the, they're the instruments of a new industrial revolution that we're still living through. Um, you know, society was becoming much more consumerist, more individualistic, more domestic, and more inward-looking. Um, uh, people were... It's funny because Britain, sort of post that, was a much more open society, more diverse, um, more mobile. But at the same time, you know, it's obviously more unequal and harsher in some ways. A society of winners and losers, famously. Um, I mean, I think the single biggest legacy is probably the what we've talked about a bit, which is the kind of national narrative idea, the idea of Britain, British greatness, British distinctiveness. And of being a sort of the unashamed patriotism and the populism. You know, don't let anyone push you down. You're Britain. You can stand up to anybody. People didn't say that in 1975. They said, we are being pushed around by anybody. Um, but in 90, by 1985, that sort of bashing Europeans and all the rest of it has started to become a bit of a habit. And clearly a lot of people have been converted to this... Um, to this sort of populist patriotism, this idea that British is best. And we had, you know, I think for a lot of people, there's a sense at the end of this period that we've been through the worst, we've been through our little blip, and now we're coming out and we're a top nation again. I think that's a huge um, legacy of this period. But I guess as well, the one thing that really strikes me about doing all this, I mean, one thing I thought at the beginning was, and I remember talking when I made a TV series about the eighties, talking to the producer about this was, could you tell this whole story and basically take Margaret Thatcher out of it? You know, if you literally didn't use her, her name at all, she just didn't appear. How would the story be different? You know, cause I've always thought she's the last great man stroke woman that historians write about, you know, and I have this sort of section of the book where I have some fun with this, you know, the idea that basically she pulls a lever and a factory explodes, she presses a button and a new shopping centre appears, that she's uniquely powerful and she drives all these things. But nobody says that about other prime ministers and sort of democratically elected presidents. It's a nonsense. And so many of these changes are driven by ordinary people's decisions. So actually the bits in the book that I found that I that I really probably enjoyed most were about things that had nothing to do with the government or, or, or indeed politics. So things like the first big out-of-town supermarkets, the changes in the food that people ate, you know, the, the growth of ready meals, um, people using, kids using computers. These kind of subterranean changes, women wearing trousers, these are things that would have happened anyway and they're driven by the choices that millions of people made unwittingly often and they are the things that have contributed to make britain what it is 
um, perhaps far more than anything that Margaret Thatcher ever did. That was Dominic Sandbrook. His book, Who Dares Wins? Britain 1979-82, to is available now, published by Alan Lane. Dominic's also written a feature for us, arguing that the Falklands War should be seen as a victory for the British psyche. You can find that in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. He'll also be speaking at our History Weekend in Winchester at the beginning of November. You can find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Monday when David Laws will be discussing Lord Kitchener. (laughs) 